clip. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show, we have Houston Kraft. And Houston is a prolific motivational speaker, trainer, and kindness advocate. So what does that mean? Well, Houston is the founder of an organization called Character Strong. And Character Strong is working with organizations, education institutions around the globe to promote social emotional learning. So more words. What does that mean? It means that he is uh, training people in the language of things like love, compassion, empathy, vulnerability. How do we uh, create culture? How do we create learning environments where people understand what these things are? And most importantly, how we apply them into our life. And what we talk about today is a concept that he has created called deep kindness. And um, deep kindness is, you know, the practical application of learning how to forgive people. It is the practice of vulnerability, of deeply caring about things, of opening up to help people. Um, It is the practical application of empathy, you know, learning how to ask questions, to hone our curiosity, to listen attentively. Um, So he is... uh, really brilliant in his distinctions, his ability to define some of these concepts as well as to kind of parlay these these tangible actions and things that we can do in our life. And outside of that, he's just got this levity and silliness to him uh, that's really beautiful. You can tell that he comes at his work from a very authentic place. And we even close the entire interview talking about how important that is uh, in the modern age of digital marketing and influencers of, of how to share, how to teach, how to coach um, from a place that is more authentic and sharing versus telling and selling and how that really leads to deeper connection. So I love this conversation, uh, an hour and a half truly in the bubble, in social flow. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, for any of you who are listening, a uh, quick FYI that we have two Junto retreats coming up. March 27th in Los Angeles, April 10th in upstate New York. So if any of these concepts are interesting to you of compassion, social emotional learning and wellness, how to masterfully integrate our emotional lives into our actions, uh, into our communication, uh, those are two really powerful retreats that are almost full up for both of those. So Uh, whether you have someone that you care about who could use this type of community and support or whether you are just simply up for an upgrade and a challenge and a big adventure, check out those Junta retreats. So without further ado, here is Houston Craft. All right. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Sitting across from my friend, Mr. Houston Craft. How are we doing? Uh, It's good to be here. I, uh, I feel like anytime our paths cross... It is almost always thoughtful and interesting. Totally. I have always felt uh, the the first place that we ever sat with one another was in a temple structure in <laughs> Burning Man. And I just felt like there was so much that was going on, probably like a thousand people. And if you if you guys have ever experienced that like moment where you're in a room of people, but you just drop into a conversation and it feels like the rest of the world kind of like evaporates and you just have yeah. a, a presence and a depth um, to you that I've always appreciated. So I'm excited that now we're, we're firming up that container and we get to, to really drop in. 
Yeah, I think that was actually our first and second time encountering each other was in the same space, serendipitously. Oh, yeah, that's right. Just a fun gift. You know, it's interesting. So that idea of kind of the the background going away, it's a it's a funny concept that I, I sometimes call the egg is um, there's a guy named Alex Honnold, who if you saw the movie Free Solo, who's mm-hmm. like this prolific climber. I'm just checking my levels right now because I'm looking like I'm loud. Okay, I'm good. Um, so there was a book um, many years ago called uh, West of Jesus, and it was by this author, Stephen Kotler, who then wrote Stealing Fire and like a bunch mm-hmm. of other things, Rise of Superman. So he's mm-hmm. like this prolific writer on flow states. And when he was talking about Alex Honnold in his book, he was interviewing Alex and he had this photo of him climbing this, this rock face and it was one of his like free climbs. So he's got no ropes and Alex was looking at this photo and he laughed and Steven said like, why are you laughing? And he's like, because it's so funny whenever I see myself on a rock face, it just, it's, it doesn't compute because when I'm on the rock face, I'm so acutely aware of what he calls like the egg, which is his direct surroundings of like mm-hmm. one foot in front of him, one foot behind him, one foot above him, one foot below. So he's got this like sphere of focus. Mm. And it's like he he has such an acute focus on what's happening so that he literally feels like he has spider senses. You know, he's like superhuman to be present to what he's doing on the wall. And I always love that idea with people mm. of like if you are in a room and you are aware of everything that's happening and other conversation and who's coming in and who's leaving that you don't have as much like computing power to just be present to like kind of conjure your own thoughts to like Mm. articulate your curiosity and ask questions and so i love that idea of you know the egg when you're with people so making the egg yeah Yeah. totally (laughs) welcome to the egg yeah this should be an over easy (laughs) i hope i don't know we'll see well you know it's you and one of the things that i appreciate again is your ability to tap into to you know levels of depth right away and to really kind of honor the audience, why don't we just why don't we just do that? It feels appropriate for you, and it really is. It's you know, you've spent your life kind of masterfully working with young people, um, especially. Uh, I would say is your focus. You can correct me if that's not true, but working with with young people and training them in so many different arenas, but especially in in the realm of kindness, and so not just for young people, but for all people, how would you articulate, like, what is this idea, this concept that you wish more people could integrate into their lives? Uh, I feel, I feel uh, maybe a frustratingly employed in our current culture in the sense of there, I think there's a, a collective cry out for kindness right now. And I think kindness has always been a bit of a, like a known quantity, right? Of like we sort of fundamentally, I think we understand that it's a necessity in our world. I think we have this sort of like natural value of it. I think partially because we know we want it in our own lives. We want to be cared for and seen and paid attention to all those things. Um, and yet uh, it feels like increasingly so we're expo- exposed to more cruelty and disconnection and isolation and loneliness and depression than ever before. And so to me, um, I suppose, yeah, like that the past many years of my life have been dedicated to exploring, exploring that gap. Like w- why is it that we could collectively so value a thing and mm. then collectively be so bad at it? <laughs> um, and I, you know, there's lots of, I think there's a lot of those things in our our life that we know are good and, and we aren't good at. 
Um, but kindness to me seems like one of the most obvious, almost like low hanging fruit of like, why, why aren't, why don't we do this thing more often? Um, and so, yeah, that work I think is one part self-reflection mm. of like figuring out why is it, you know, where do I have my gaps? Um, and then one part thinking about it at like the educational level of okay, then how do you, how do we actually teach this thing that can feel a bit ephemeral, a bit abstract, a bit like this, like value that's sort of floating. Um, you know, it's like anything related to the heart. I think we have a much harder time wrapping our heads around. Um, so that's, yeah, that's been the work. I've been working in schools for, mm. um, 10 years in some capacity, uh, for many years that was like wandering the country as a motivational speaker, uh, doing assemblies and workshops and trainings, mostly student facing, um, and actually more and more I work with adults, uh, working with teachers and administrators and counselors and figuring out how do we, how do we equip adults who I think are, are actually desperate for tools yeah. to help navigate young people who are more anxious than ever, uh, who are, who are, you know, the, the data would say that the average student today has as much anxiety as the average psychiatric patient from the 1950s. Wow. So I think there's like teachers who want to teach, but like, don't feel equipped to navigate young people's emotional landscape or mental health. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose that that's become over the past three years, um, more of the direct work I'm doing is with equipping educators to, to teach what we would say, like teach the whole child. Um, you know, what is it that we have to actually explicitly educate on that is non-academic, um, that emotional intelligence component, like that social intelligence component. Um, and so a few years ago with a friend started an organization called character strong that helps teach, you know, teach things like kindness or empathy, um, mindfulness, resilience, growth mindset, civil discourse, the, the other half, the things that, um, we know are necessary to live like a meaningful, um, meaningful, engaged life that, um, I really believe if we don't teach, then, uh, we're sending out a lot of we're sending up the next generation into a world that they are ill-equipped for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the work. Beautiful, man. I mean, so much has, has come up even from that introduction, but I guess what I'd, what I'd most want to hear from you right now is what was the moment when this work emerged as something that you were deeply passionate about and that you were capable of kind of contributing to? So was there a moment when, you know, this work in the realm of social and emotional intelligence, working with educators, administrators, what was the moment where you said, I want and can do something here? A lot of my life has been shaped by the content uh, at a, at like a leadership, like a summer camp, which I know seems <laughs> as a participant or as like an actual, like we talking like CIT actual tr like counselor, but both a bit. So yeah. as a participant, like in high school, went to this camp, I grew up mostly in Washington state Yeah, and camp, anyone who's gone to summer camp, actually w working a bit with, there's a, it's called the making caring common project at Harvard. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out how they equip schools with like low burden empathy building strategies. And something like 80% of the things that they came up with that they discovered through research were effective for building empathy in teenagers mm. were like, was directly at a summer camp. Yeah. So there's like some magic about camp that, um, I was affected by as a kid. 
some of the paradigm shifts that I experienced around kindness and leadership and influence and my capacity to help or serve in the world um, was shaped through camp. Um, and so I, I guess I do have a distinct memory of like being at camp, hearing some of these concepts or ideas for the first time um, and having my whole life shifted. Um, I talk with educators a lot about how our paradigms drive our practices. It's like the way we think about a thing is going to shape how we act with a thing. Yeah. Um, I think that's true with kindness. I think that's true with leadership. Um, and as like a quote unquote student leader in high school, I remember I thought my job was about like putting on events and, um, you know, being in charge, being a liaison, communicating like effectively. Um, and the paradigm shift for me was that like leadership was love and it was like the willingness to put love into action consistently over time to serve people. Um, Robert Greenleaf invented the term servant leadership and he would say the true test of a servant leader is did you leave people better than you found them, Hmm. especially those with the least amount of power. Hmm. Uh, And that's like the test you can come back to all the time. Like, are you being a leader? And you know, those ideas, um, if I were to pinpoint a moment, I remember experiencing such profound like heart shift in my life Mm. that I remember coming back the next year as a counselor, seeing other young people go through that and being like, oh, what a gift. Like if I can provide perspective that shapes someone's paradigms that then in some capacity changes their practices or shapes their life in some way, like that's like the, the greatest gift that you could offer. Um, Speaking of the egg, uh, I heard this quote or this concept like two years ago that life is the size of our awareness. And it's funny, you you frame it like an egg because sometimes I literally picture like a little circle or an oval around me of all the things that I'm aware of. And you know as well as I do, like the area beyond that egg are all the things that we don't know that we don't know. And that space is much larger than the egg that exists around me. Um, and so I think about perspective, uh, perspective is like the greatest gift you could give someone Mm -hmm. because if you offer someone a data point or an insight that expands that egg, (laughs) that expands that awareness, it can potentially shape everything that person does for the rest of their life. Totally. Um, you literally make their life bigger. Yeah. And like, and them bigger of, I had a, I had a mentor What this really registers for me is the idea. I had a mentor who talked about this. He, he's really prolific in the world of men's work and also a great coach. And he said, there's a, there's a difference between actualization and realization. Hmm. He said, actualization is someone basically manifesting all of their, uh, capabilities and, resources to kind of actualize their potential. And he said, realization is the recognition of a more fundamental truth about the nature of reality or who you are that kind of liberates an increased capacity to create, to act, Mm. to do things. And so it's the idea of like, I almost think of like actualization as like motivation of like, do this, like accountability to like, and helpful certainly, Mm. but that realization of like a simple shift in perspective, which has like very little kind of like physical action. Sometimes it's just mindset, which I'm yeah. so fascinated with you, but that a shift in 
why you're doing something or like what is important in the world or to you liberates a new capacity to act, to be present with people, Mm. to be kind. And I think that the best coaches and trainers and teachers, I think it's such a fundamental shift. And why I want to key in there is, yeah, the word perspective there, Mm -hmm. right? And how, and so with that, how as a, how as a teacher, as a trainer, do you make that sort of perspective shift available to your students and to your teachers and administrators? Yeah. A, I love, I love distinctions, right? Like anytime (laughs) we can I think like words are so words are how we shape everything in our brain. Um, they provide frameworks for us to like navigate the world. And so, yeah, any, any opportunity we have to talk about this versus this, I'm also interested in intersections. So like, in thinking about the Venn diagram between realization and actualization, what lives like in that intersection space? Like where someone merging realization with actualization. Yeah. That feels like there's a, there's a word there. What is that word? It's not it's uh actualization and uh, realization. Actualization plus realization equals. Hmm. Maybe we just leave that as a thought experiment. Yeah, totally. Listening. Of like, what is the active state of both of the unity of both of those things? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think it's it's true. I don't know. I mean, one thing I oftentimes think about when I think about actualization is the idea that, so do you know, I think I might've told you this, but about Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm-hmm. and how he formally amended the hierarchy of needs and that it's yeah. not actualization, it's, like transcendence mm. is truly the the peak experience of humans because to actualize the self, you have to be connected to a mission cause mm-hmm. kind of uh, sense of purpose that is greater than the self. Yeah. Otherwise self-actualization is kind of a fallacy unto itself. And so realization and actualization, it feels like a fundamental part of, I don't know. I don't know, man. We could play in here yeah, for a while. I know. But yeah, we could get messy even this. <laughs> It's a fun thought Bookmark. experiment though, yeah. for sure. Yeah. There's something about alignment or embodiment or I think wholeness. Al- yeah. I think alignment is like yeah. a very, the thing is though, is that realization is, you know, I, what's, what's interesting about it is, is so often comes from external like teaching and training and experiences, right? I think that you can sit in meditation and or just kind of like observing your own experience and have some moments of clarity about like what is true, what's important. But I really do, you know, one of the reasons why I got like became a coach and why I love speaking is because of how many of those moments I've experienced uh, uh, through mentors, through mm. great books of perspective of other people and extracting wisdoms from others that has made that sort of, you know, realization possible and have been so impacted by it. So it's, it feels, it's interesting to think about those things because our, our capacity to actualize is always just fundamentally altered when we have these deeper realizations, like Mm -hmm. you just talked about, like Mm -hmm. what our life becomes bigger, right? Mm -hmm. As you said, yeah, and totally, which is why it's such a, you know, it's an interesting thing of when we think about actualizing, it feels like so much doing. Yeah as opposed to just being open and listening and growing and learning. And yeah, so, but back, back to you. So yeah. when yeah. you think, when you think about this, of 
And I think it's such a, and let's move over to the couch actually, because it'll be a little, we got AC turning on, so we're going to be on the move. And so when you think about like how to actually make this type of perspective shift available to people, how do you do that as an educator? Um, I think part of it is always starting with common language. So you, you tap into what do people already believe? What do people already know or think they know? Um, and so one of my favorite speaking of distinctions is talking about the difference between nice and kind. Um, in fact, I had a student at the end of an assembly in Texas came up to me afterwards. He's a senior boy. And, uh, he goes, Houston, while I was listening to you today, I realized I'm a really nice person. And I was like, that's great, man. Like, I guess that was kind of the point, the whole <laughs> talk. And he goes, no, like I realized, I realized that I've always thought of myself as nice, but I, I don't think I'm actually kind. He goes, or maybe I, I thought about myself as kind, but I think I'm actually nice. And I'm like, well, what do you, how would you articulate the difference? And he says, I think nice is just a reaction. He's like, if someone's nice to me, I'll be nice back. Or if I agree with you, I'll be nice to you. Um, he's like, I think it's just like when it's convenient or comfortable for me, I'm like pleasant. And he goes, but the way you talked about kindness today, like the framework you, the stories you used and the way you, you spoke about it, he goes, I realize that like kindness is much more proactive. It requires intentionality. It requires work. He goes, it requires me not necessarily to even like feel like it. Like I don't, need to it shouldn't be necessarily convenient or comfortable i don't have to necessarily agree with you to be kind to you mm. i don't have to necessarily like you to be kind to you he goes i realize that kindness requires a lot of work and he ends he, he brought himself to tears he goes i realize i have a lot of work to do mm. it was this really beautiful you know self-generated insight realization that i think was offered by just sharing perspective i think you know the power of storytelling um is the power to tap into people's personal stories, right? You and I might not share the exact same narrative, but I think in sharing stories, we have the opportunity to offer people um, opportunities to intersect, right? I always think about like, I was a theater major and I loved being on stage sharing a story because for many people in the audience, they're watching a story on stage and in their brain, they're attaching every data point and every narrative to their personal narrative. And they're looking, even unconsciously, we're looking for those, those moments of intersection. How does this story relate to my story? And I think, um, consciously or unconsciously, we're always trying to do that. And the more that we allow ourselves to be exposed to new stories or new perspectives, the more opportunities we have to self-realize things that maybe we already kind of knew were there, but like we've been given language or perspective to understand it more deeply. Um, so I really believe in the power of story to help people access that. Um, I really believe in the power of language and helping people create distinctions because I think clarity mm. is critical if we're going to be competent in something. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the far side of that is like post-realization, then, then it's work. You know, then yeah. it's like the get down to business, totally. go to the gym, repetition, practice, build over time, you know, like all the things that we know to form thoughtful habits yeah, um, is like the discipline totally. to work. And so when you, so we talk about distinctions and so I'm curious when you use the word kindness, which I agree that to make something that is so like when you talk about character strong, so you talk about personal character and values. And so to help people grasp what that means. So for you, 
what does kindness mean? How do you define it? Yeah, well, I make I make distinctions over definitions, I think, in my brain most often. So what's the difference? Um, distinctions, I, I think, help provide like context. Hmm. So it's like if I know what this is, then maybe it helps me understand that there's like a different like a, a variation. Sure. Um, so for me, uh, I just finished writing my first book and the book's premise is about the way we speak about kindness hmm. and how I think culturally, even unintentionally, I think we devalue and oversimplify this thing. E- even though I think we would, we would assign it importance and we believe it's important. I think, um, you know, kindness has become a little bit of a buzzword enough to start to appear on shirts and in brands and in, um, you know, like social impact and companies wanted to align themselves with that. So there's like all sorts of things that just say like, be kind and be a good person. And, uh, you know, working in schools, you see lots of posters in hallways. And one of the ones I see probably most ubiquitously is throw kindness around like confetti. Yeah. And to me, obviously it's a well-intentioned quote <laughs> it's just asking people to spread kindness more often but i think it's actually a great example of sort of the unintentional way that we're like flippant with kindness mm. which is to say we talk about it like it's confetti and i think if you think about most of the books that you'd read about kindness or the columns it's almost always like the random acts of kindness and the things that are newsworthy around kindness is always like involves like the pay it forward line at the coffee shop or like people that raised thousands of dollars for this kid who is sick and there's balloons and you know it's like bright and shiny yeah and um so a lot of the book is trying to actually provide good distinction between what i would describe as confetti kindness Mm. and deep kindness Mm. which uh, the suggestion i think of the whole book would be the world is actually in much more critical need of deep kindness than it is confetti kindness which is not to dismiss confetti kindness, right? Confetti kindness in my brain is like the icing on top. It's the sprinkles and it's fun and it's like worthwhile. Like we need those little moments of joy and hope and play. Yeah. Um, but I think that the kindness that the world actually needs that I don't think our world talks about enough would be like the much messier version, yeah. right? Which is the like the uncomfortable personal development work to forgive. Uh, I think that forgiveness is an action of kindness for ourselves and for others. Hmm. Um, I think it requires a lot of uh, self-reflection around uh, like insecurities and how they prevent us from connection. Hmm. Um, how our fear of rejection or embarrassment or failure might actually prevent me from opportunities for kindness in my life. Hmm. Um, one of the sort of common refrains in the book is like the kind of kindness that the world needs is blank. Um, so I talk a lot about how like our kindness needs to be informed by empathy. Um, and empathy is a whole skill set unto itself. Right. Um, and in writing the book, I stumbled upon this really powerful story of, um, post Sandy hook, the shooting, um, people in an attempted act of kindness sent thousands of teddy bears, uh, to be kind to this school that has suffered loss. So many teddy bears, in fact, that the town had to rent a warehouse just to house them all. It's like a 20,000 square foot warehouse that the town is now responsible for paying for because they don't know what to do with all these teddy bears. They don't want to just throw them away. And one of the people that helped set up the candlelit vigil said that there were more stuffed animals than there were people. And he goes, a teddy bear is great, but a teddy bear doesn't pay for counseling and a teddy bear doesn't pay for a funeral. Yeah. Um, 
And so I talk a lot about how like kindness without empathy is usually more self-serving yeah. than it is other serving. Um, and to me, the practice of deep kindness is cultivating our skill of empathy, which is to say, how do I get better at listening and taking others' perspectives to understand what they really need instead of what I think they need? Because right? so often with kindness, confetti kindness in particular, I think we project onto other people what we want for ourselves and in offering it to them, sometimes we even grow resentful if someone doesn't accept my kindness because like I'm doing something good for you. Mm. And it might not be the thing that you actually want or need at all, but I think it's good for you <laughs> like, or sure. I'm excited about it. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, yeah, the, the distinction in my brain, you know, to me, deep kindness is um, the practice of connecting with ourselves and others in meaningful ways that's informed by a lot of um, skills that live underneath the action itself, right? So like the action of kindness, being informed by empathy or being mm -hmm. informed by emotional regulation or being informed by um, self-respect, yeah. being informed by personal development around what I'm struggling with in my life. Um, and if I haven't done that work that lives underneath, then I think kindness is possible, but I don't think it's as potent. Yeah. And I mean, even to, to provide another kind of distinction in here, because it feels so fundamental to the act of real deep kindness. Um, how do you think of what is empathy to you? Uh, empathy, I actually just finished an amazing book by uh, this guy named Jamil Zaki, I think. So his name's called The War on Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. Mm. Um and he talks about how there's there's a there's actually a, like empathy is sort of an umbrella term for a lot of different types of engagement with people. Um, and he talks about like sort of the there's like the feelings bit. There's like cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. Um, so I don't want to dim diminish it too much, but to me, like on its highest level, is our capacity to feel with people. Yeah. Um, and that capacity again is reliant on my own emotional vocabulary. Like, do I know what I'm feeling actually? Or do I reduce my feelings to a limited vocabulary, which I think we all do to some degree. But yeah. I talk with students, I talk about the four primary feelings, which is mad, sad, glad, and afraid. Afraid. Those are the four <laughs> driving feelings that we have. Yeah. And if I haven't been taught otherwise, like I might be feeling irritated, but I might just think I'm mad. Yeah. Right. Cause I don't necessarily know like the minutia there. Like I can't, there's like shades of gray Yeah, that if I don't have the word for it, then everything's gray. Hmm. Uh, so empathy, I think is reliant on that vocabulary. I think empathy is reliant on the ability to regulate my emotions. So like, I, I don't think I can be truly empathetic with someone in a way that's effective yeah. if I can't be in that space with them without losing myself to that emotion. Yeah. Right. Just like falling down together doesn't, necessarily allow us to help you sure. know um, i can be sad i can hurt with you yeah. but if i go too deep that way if i'm tapping into my own sadness too much then i've lost my capacity to like do anything on the far side you know in psychology they would say that and in buddhism they would say compassion would be like not only that ability to feel with right in latin it translates to suffer with yeah um but they would say like also an active desire to alleviate that suffering yeah so I can't just be like drowning with you. That's unhelpful ultimately. Yeah. I also need to have the wherewithal and the skills to lend you a hand. 
And one of the things that I respect about you is, again, is how you frame things in a way that feels kind of actionable. And so I asked earlier, what is emotional, social emotional learning? And what I'm curious about is actually, it's like when you talked about earlier, you said kindness is, like deep kindness is forgiveness, you know, of like, so I'm curious, what are the applications of deep kindness that you would like people to consider of like, so you talked about forgiving and if you could just kind of go through some of those of like, what are the applications and things that you wish people would kind of like apply more of their life of these like applications and expressions of deep kindness? What, what are those things that you wish people could kind of integrate into their relationships and their lives more actively? The, the applications of deep kindness or, or how I think it plays out in our real life and in our culture would be, yeah, one of them on the most, you know, sort of personal levels would be forgiveness. I think the people in our life who've hurt us the most also provide us an opportunity to free ourselves the most um, from that pain. And, and almost all those things can be valuable teachers if we're able to detach, you know, in our curriculum we talk about forgiveness is separating the person from the behavior um which is a skill you know to to say in your brain towards someone you did a bad thing you're not a bad person um one of my favorite quotes around forgiveness is while you're holding a grudge the other person's out dancing and it's actually the character trait most associated with happiness hmm. um, is forgiveness so deep kindness would be the practice of forgiveness towards yourself and others you just you went through that so quickly, but it was so rich that I want to pause and just extrapolate a little bit because you said something that feels so important to me. You said, you did a bad thing. You're not a bad person. Could you say more about that statement? The, I think our, it, yeah, again, language drives everything. So if we think of forgiveness as saying, um, in forgiving you, I'm dismissing what you did as okay. Um, I don't, uh, there's probably few people that we'd want to forgive because we don't want to, uh, allow people to hurt us totally. <laughs> or cross boundaries that, um, are important to us. So the, again, that distinction in my brain around, um, I can say very clearly, you're never allowed to do this to me again. Mm. I, Brene Brown would say the most kind people are the most boundaried. They're really clear on what's okay and what's not okay. She would also say clear is kind. So you're not allowed to do this to me again. And you're worthy and lovable and imperfect hmm. and whole like all of us. So, you know, and my willingness to give that grace or generosity to others is going to be indicative of my capacity to give it to myself in times where I screw up which yeah, we could get deep into this, but like you get to start talking about difference between guilt and shame. Yeah, I did a bad thing. I am a bad person is like, or I made a mistake versus I am a mistake. Brene yeah. Brown would say, um, she would also say in all of her research interviewing people that the people that are the hardest on others are also, uh, statistically hardest on themselves. Yeah. So yeah, forgiveness starts to get into a lot of, um, we start talking a lot about self-love and our our capacity to set boundaries and give forgiveness to others is going to be deeply indicative of our capacity to give it to ourselves mm. um which is going to affect just about everything we do <laughs> and what what keeps us from forgiving you talked a little bit about not wanting to condone like behavior but what do you feel are the factors that keep people from forgiving and you know maybe even to make this more real 
what I would kind of pause for a moment for people who are listening is to think of who are people in your life with whom you have some unfinished business of where maybe you haven't forgiven. And as Houston goes into it to maybe consider if any of this resonates with you, but what do you feel are the things that keep people from truly forgiving others? Well, I think we have a, yeah, a, a, our fear of making it okay. Um, I think in forgiving someone, we don't want to set a precedent that this is allowed in my life again. Mm -hmm. Um, B, I think that hanging on to a perspective of someone, including ourself, um, that we associate with deeply, like this person's hurt me and in some way has made me feel unworthy or unlovable. Um, I think once we start to create those narratives in our brain, we have a really hard time detaching ourselves from them because if if we've been told externally or internally a lie for long enough, we start to believe it's true. And then we like, we hate to be wrong. So mm-hmm. in like questioning a thing that we've started to believe ourselves, um, we're like, we're challenging, we're challenging self-talk that like we, we just love to be right, especially to ourselves. Uh, and most of the things we're insecure about are just like chronic lies we've told so repeatedly mm. that we've started to believe them so deeply that even we can't convince ourselves of our own untruths. So I think that in forgiving, we are we are challenging our own perspective uh, that we've we've actually kind of grown attached to. You know, there's lots of like maybe ugly or dark things that um, because we've nurtured them for long enough, we'll just hold on to them. Um, and yeah, sometimes it's, sometimes we'll like the attachment to those ideas in our brain is one of the biggest, I think, preventions Hmm. from, from like what's on the other side. Realization is uncomfortable because realization almost always, um, necessitates change. Change. (laughs) Yeah. So we're like, yeah, this is good. Yeah. We're good here. I mean, I think what I love about this, I'm happy that we pulled into it is like, it feels so actionable. And I love what you said again about the idea that the kindest people are oftentimes those with the clearest boundaries. It's because they're more capable of forgiving others and being clear of like, and this doesn't happen again. And here's how we conduct ourselves moving forward, which I think is so practical. And in a way like you can take responsibility for that, for articulating your own boundaries very clearly, which I think a lot of people are not that skilled at or haven't been kind of versed in how to actually do that or the importance of that. So that's, that's brilliant. And anything else that you'd want to share on kindness or not kindness, but forgiveness? Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I think forgiveness, uh, there's a real close proximity to resentment. And I think to, to just like close that loop around boundaries is the absence of boundaries is the breeding ground for resentment. Yeah. And yeah, resentment is the poison of a lot of our relationships. Yeah. Um, and if we don't exercise the skill of drawing those boundaries, we're going to find ourselves just like swimming in resentment of our own making. Totally. Um, which is a, yeah, it's a sort of an exhausting way to live. We, you we, talk, sorry, we, go ahead. We just, we talk, uh, you know, a lot internally or at Character Strong about like the difference between hard and brutal. Hmm. And it's like drawing boundaries is hard but living in resentment is brutal. Yeah. 
And so it's like, which choose your own adventure kind of thing. <laughs> totally. Yeah. We just, we just had this conversation with, with Mickey and I over the weekend we were in the car and she had spent a week in nature and she noticed these like judgments that had been coming up. And, and I remember saying to myself, I was just like, you, if there's anything that you are holding on to, like any judgment, I was like, you have to tell me because it's like, it just feels like at least in our relationship. And, and I'm guilty of this as well at times of like any, any judgments, resentment, just show up in such subversive unconscious behaviors. And it's so nasty. And John Gottman, you talked about kindness or forgiveness being one of the like most significant factors in, in happiness. Right. And then the resentment would be one of the most significant kind of variables in, in the destruction of relationships. Right. Like one of the four horsemen, four horsemen of yeah. John Gottman's work. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it was, it was so valuable. And so we, she expressed them and then we like nonviolent communication, those, and it was like, what are you feeling? As mm-hmm. opposed to like, here's what you're doing. Um, and it was just so valuable and we like yeah. cleared the space in like 30 minutes. And so, yeah. Tools, man. If you don't have the tools in your toolbox to do that, yeah, then you you find yourself, yeah, frustratingly floating and sort of like, yeah, that, that natural frustration that is born of, I want to do this and I don't know how. So question for you, master of forgiveness. Um, how are you at forgiving? I, well, as my friend Dexter Davis would say, we are all human becomings, not human beings. <laughs> um, work in progress. That's great. I think, um, yeah, I had a, an end of a seven-year relationship that ended in a lot of challenges that uh, was so far my biggest teacher in forgiveness. Mm. Um, and it required it required both forgiveness of her in that relationship and, and forgiveness of myself and how I played a role in the, the end of that relationship. Um, and so I would describe myself presently as proud of myself mm. for um, how I've dug into the work of forgiveness, knowing that it's something I talk about and I heard it on a podcast a while ago that wise people take their own advice. And so I've been trying to listen to that more <laughs> and like exercising these things that I articulate um the thing that the area of growth i still have is um is definitely like boundary boundary drawing yeah um and whenever i have a really clear but hard conversation i walk on the other side feeling so liberated and so good and then there's like plenty of times where i'm not having those conversations and i feel muddy and yeah resentful and frustrated so um still have a that's where i i'm uh, the you know the biggest piece of me that I'm working against is the people pleaser side. Yeah. Um, because as a people pleaser boundary conversations, your the story you have in your head is they're going to like you less. Yeah. And the irony of course is always, they're going to respect you more. Yeah. Well, and what do you, so they're going, I think that's a really important distinction, right? It's, uh, the distinction between like and respect mm. and which you're trying to cultivate in your relationships of like, am I trying to be liked? And I saw someone post about this today on a, a like a speaker group I'm a part of, but there's a, a book in Japan right now that I think is really big and it's called The Courage to be Disliked. Uh, yeah. Have you seen that? <laughs> I like but I mean, <laughs> which just makes sense in Japanese culture as I well. I respect it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, and it's that idea of cultivating 
respect versus being liked mm. and being liked to me registers as again as kind of like a kowtowing to your perception of the needs or desires of others and to be respected by others it, it's it, it just has kind of always occurred to me that like to be respected by others i have to articulate what my needs desires and to speak authentically mm. to be respected because if i'm not speaking authentically like I, I won't I don't respect someone else who's not doing that right and so mm -hmm. it's like that distinction of being liked versus being respected and giving people an opportunity to respect you like you you speaking your truth articulating boundaries is essential in that in mm. that part of it mm -hmm. Does that resonate absolutely yeah I think almost by definition being liked is like being welcomed into the tribe of like what's already happening i like you because i am you in some ways um versus respect feels like someone is like standing apart a bit yeah which isn't inherently a bad thing right but it, there is like a willingness required to not yeah adapt or to acquiesce to whatever norm um yeah we almost always respect people who do it different yeah but to do it different requires you know the willingness to stand occasionally alone yeah and I and I want to <laughs> I want to move on for forgiveness, but there's one. It's there's so one good though. Forgiveness feels, is yeah, important. It's, it, it's, it really does. And it's like even as I feel like a, almost like a pit in my stomach of like it's you know so often in my own life of people who I've not forgiven, I've been so angry at, and forgiveness sometimes feels counter to the expression of anger or hurt, you know. So it's like to forgive sometimes just registers for me and I'm really just kind of going in the moment right now as like something that is the culmination of the processing of some of these internal feelings. Yeah. And what are your thoughts about that, about people's, you know, when we're still processing the, the emotional kind of wound of some sort of transgression or action that has impacted us, is it right to forgive before we have processed that, emotional kind of impact from those things does mm. that make sense yeah yeah i mean part of the the um genesis of character strong is is a lot of conversations around the or the analogy to exercise and how a skill like forgiveness in our life has a lot of parallels to any other muscle we build mm. so i would i think i would pull that analogy into the question which is to say I think there are 100 pound acts of forgiveness in our life that we shouldn't try to lift until we've lifted a lot of fives and tens and twenties. Yeah. Um, because in doing so you're going to hurt yourself, you know, like genuinely, I think you'll, you're going to do something before you're actually ready to, which yeah. might seem courageous, but it, it, it's actually sort of like an ill, Ill equipedness. Totally. Um, and I can be really enthusiastic and brave and go into gold's gym here and, try to lift some of the weights these other people are lifting, but these people have been lifting weights a lot longer than I have. <laughs> totally. So I think that, I think that parallels with, with an action of forgiveness or empathy or anything is just recognizing it's okay. Yeah. To, I mean, we're, we're all going to have things that we're harboring and navigating and, and working through, but I think there is a worthwhile exercise to say, which one of these things in my life right now feel like the hundred pounders Yeah. and which, which ones are, are actually a little bit more accessible. And can I start there to, to get, you know, a lot of the science around habits would be like, you got to get small wins. Totally. And what does a small win look like in forgiveness today? Mm. Um, that helps me 
see the value, build the skill before yeah. I pull out the these big moments. Totally. And also I think to think about, you know, the inaccessibility of some of maybe these, you talk about like the small wins, but some of these kind of like bigger contentious relationships or kind of like areas of resentment or where you maybe have not felt ready to forgive that also, you know, just to point it out here is I think that for those of you who are in relationships or, you know, have experience with families that I think that therapy and, and coaches, you know, to actually facilitate some of those conversations you talk about not being equipped to fully dive into those territories is that you don't need to, to go it alone, yeah. you know, is that there are some resources that are available in terms of how to navigate those types of conversations and that it, it doesn't need to go alone. And so often with a lot of clients and people that I work with, it's having a moderator, and this was true in my own relationship, is having a moderator who has had the vernacular you know, had the words to articulate what our experience was to help us meet one another mm. was so fundamental in our ability to to forgive, to grow yeah. through those things, for sure. So. Yeah. Effective, deep kindness is relying on vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. If man. I'm not willing to ask for help, then I'm not willing to humble myself enough to say I can't do this alone. Mm. Then, yeah, I'm going to fight a lot of uphill battles where, like, we should be lifting this weight together. And Totally. Beautiful. So forgiveness is one of these applications and actions of deep kindness and what resonates for you is another one of these kind of applications or exercises in deep kindness that you wish more people were aware of and could practice. Uh, um, I think to dig just a, a moment deeper into empathy, I would say that an action of deep kindness would be uh, the willingness to, to expand empathy in your life. Mm. Um, you know, if life is our awareness, then I think our brains really naturally, when we meet someone else, I think our brains consciously or unconsciously are trying to see how much of my egg overlaps with your egg. You know, we're trying to figure out because in seeing, in knowing that you have something in common with me, whether it's beliefs or passions or likes or interests, I immediately have greater access to understanding you. Yeah. Um, and I think our brains are always trying to do that because we want to connect. And that's like one of the most foundational ways that we do is like oh you like the same thing i do let's talk about that <laughs> um and, and i think that the you know the w one of the ways that we grow empathy is to discover what we have dissimilar and then to, to dig into it right you know empathy is a byproduct of good listening and good conversation so it's like if i'm asking meaningful questions literally makes my egg bigger my life bigger yeah um so i think an action of deep kindness is actually listening mm really good listening. Yeah. Um, and how do you do that with people that are different than you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you do that? Well, I think the, one of my favorite quotes is don't worry about being interesting, work on being interested. Yeah. Um, and to be interested is like, a you know, there's a, there's a, uh, intentional curiosity, which is holding, first of all, there's a mindset yeah. of holding people of worthwhile of your interest, um, and not assigning people, value based on any other ex sort of exterior or ex external metrics yeah but rather just like their inherent worth yeah um and that everyone has something to teach you i think a, a kind listening disposition is to believe everyone has something to teach me um i think asking meaningful questions in my brain the definition of a meaningful question is not only something that teaches me something about you but in listening to you teaches me something about me mm. so asking questions that drive 
sort of the expansion of my understanding, not just like factual yeah. transmission transactions, sure. but like yeah, deep listening would be sort of that discovery process or yeah. that mutual discovery process, which is typically the most beautiful conversations where we're both yeah. realizing together. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think the, the vocabulary of asking those questions is developed, right? So it's like the, I know, you know, this intimately, it's the practice of that, that starts to develop or expand that vocabulary and literally like my most favorite, you know, guilty pleasure is ordering question boxes on Amazon, <laughs> like <laughs> just like finding all of those. And, you know, there's some early on in this practice, I think it is truly having a couple of those in your back pocket that you go to. Yeah. I think you were writing about this the other day. It's I, like the big five is yeah, your big five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of those that I just like enjoy. So what are, what are yours? So the, it just, so what he referenced was the big five is one of the things that I oftentimes do in my, my social flow keynotes is I will have people ask the question, uh, generally thematically, what are five questions that articulate your fundamental curiosity in others? So when you meet somebody on the street, in a boardroom, at a conference, like what are five questions that articulate what it is that you'd like to know about them, truly want to know about them? And having those five as just these anchors that can oftentimes take you into deeper conversations. So what would be some of your kind of like anchor questions that you come back to? Uh, some of my favorites would be, um, what's the biggest difference between you now and high school you? Great. Um, what breaks your willpower? <laughs> uh, what's something that you want to do but know you never will? Yeah. Can we go through these one more time so we do it a little slower? So <laughs> the first was, what's most different about high school you and you today? Mm -hmm. What breaks your willpower? I like have an immediate reference to that one. And then the last one was? Uh, what's something you want to do but know you never will? Something you want to do but know you never will. Interesting. I don't know if I have a... I didn't have an immediate reaction to that one. What's something that I want to do that I know I never will? For some reason, it like... I think ride a really fast motorcycle hmm. because That's Mickey, funny Mickey would just be like, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which I, I like that question because it brings up either people's like, like sort of like the shadow self or like the dark desires. Yeah. Or it brings up people's sort of like reference point of like, what is there anything that if I wanted to do it, like what's my association with desire versus action? Yeah. Um, and then it brings up people's like relationships of like who else am I beholden to <laughs> and are my actions beholden to. So there's lots of, lots of fun layers. To that. Just, Mine's a bank heist. Oh yeah? Yeah. Like yeah. a really elaborate one. You know, like like, like we're stuff. talking like heat style bank heist. Yeah. Yeah. Like lots of people involved. And, <laughs> Great. Yeah. yeah. I want to change my answer though. <laughs> I had, I had a, actually, well, a fast motorcycle would be involved almost certainly in a bank heist. <laughs> I think, I think it, also one thing I'm thinking about now is I remember I was at my friend, do you know Amber Ray? Mm -hmm. she wrote, yeah. So Amber is one of my really good friends and she, she does this thing at her, at her dinner parties where she has this, uh, Jenga and she's written questions on every Jenga piece. Oh yeah. And so we pull them out and one of them was about like, you know, something similar of like, what's like wildest sexual fantasy or something like that. And I just kind of like off the cuff went, you know, wild, coconut oil beach orgy like tons of people <laughs> and then i remember i think mickey just looks at me and she's like sounds super sandy <laughs> and i was like okay i guess we're not doing that one 
but yeah so. what's something you know you want but no you never will there you go you got another you got a handful of answers like, yeah a bunch of people with coconut oil on the beach like that just yeah. sounds like it's you haven't thought through the logistics i didn't really didn't think of the logistics <laughs> of that one uh, that's beautiful and i love you know and even to speak to that when you talked about of uh, what's most different about you in in high school versus today um, something that is really kind of valuable from a storytelling standpoint, like whether it's in teaching, is that idea of focusing on the shift is is so fascinating for people to articulate that. But also, you know, oftentimes if someone were to say, like, what is the biggest shift, then to go deeper there is like, and what facilitated that shift? Mm. Because like anytime that yeah. people experience shift in their life, in their business, it happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Something Something was driving it. You know, it was an experience or some sort of knowledge or um, a, a transition in how you were doing things. So I'd love, I love those questions. I'll share mine. My So my five questions are um, very simply, they are, uh, what are you most excited about? Uh, what is challenging? What's your dream? And I qualify that off by saying, it's like, if you knew that you couldn't fail, uh, what would you do? Um, what is your priority right now? Mm-hmm. And um, what are you most looking forward to? Hmm. And so it's like these things are, oh no, not five was, sorry. Um, what have you learned recently hmm. that's been helpful or useful? Yeah. That's a good so those idea. would be my five, which are, you know, pretty applicable. And even those first two, like if you were to forget like all of those, but just to acknowledge, I think those first two of what are you excited about and what's challenging, which yeah. for me feel like the poles of what's yeah. exciting and then challenging. Yeah. And like I, I had a friend who talked about this one like earlier of like he was we were at a party, we were at a club actually in, in Brooklyn and he was like, I don't want to talk to these people, like they're not my style and I was like, How do you know? And he's like, Well, because everyone's like having fun and like I'm kinda down and like I just want to talk about challenge and I was like, So go and ask people what's challenging and then he went on this kick of like realizing that he could ask people what's challenging and they would like open up because no one ever gave them an opportunity to talk about what's challenging, but it's like challenge doesn't mean necessarily bad yeah. or like, you know, it's just challenges inherent to the human experience. And he yeah. went to dinners and he would ask that question and people would kind of explode open it. And you know, he, it was, it was a really transformative thing to realize that. So, but I love this idea of the, the practice of listening, of curiosity to expand empathy, this this interest in there. And one of the things that I've really learned with with this as well is that so much of effective listening, like how much easier listening becomes when you are asking questions that you genuinely want the answer to. Mm-hmm. It's like how often our questions are just reflective of trying to fill the silence or like wanting to connect. But when you call the meaningful questions, intentional questions, if you care about the question you are asking, (laughs) it's much easier to actually listen, to be present. It becomes much less of a conscious thing and much more of like a a reflexive, like, oh, like I want, I want to know this. Yeah. I'm really, I don't know if you have a relationship to this at all, but I'm really conscious as we get older in the answers that we share on repetition, like the question of like, how'd you get into what you do? Right. And it's just like, I almost go on autopilot in answering that question and I've answered it so many. And I think there's a, you know, a handful of questions that we've, as we get older, we're going to get asked so many times that we're going to have more or less the same answer to, you know, there's nothing that's going to change about how I got into this really. Um, and so I'm, I try to be hyper aware in conversations. I think occasionally you have that. Those are a couple layup questions that you, or baseline totally but i try to avoid that like anytime i see someone switch on to autopilot in their answer i know i've 
not done a bad thing, but I've done a thing <laughs> that I don't want to do. Well, you know, you know what I do now is I actually open it up because it's it's I'm more interested in the conversation when we do this. If someone comes up and they say, "How are you doing?" I'll say, "What would you like to know?" <laughs> you know, and I because I'm I and and sometimes mm. they'll say, "I want to know how you're doing." Yeah, and like if that's genuinely what they want to know, I'm excited to answer that. Yeah, but it's just kind of again this going through the motions of like, what do you say? What do you do? Like, how did you get into that? Like, and I'm just like, what would you like to know about? You know, how I got into it of giving people again, permission and an invitation Mm. to like articulate their curiosity a little more deeply. Yeah. And I think, you know, oftentimes what I think about when a lot, one of the most common questions I get like on, on Instagram, especially it's like, how do I become a good conversationalist? And one of the things that I say is like, is it, so much of it on the surface looks like asking good questions. And what I think it is, is just articulating your curiosity. And it really, you talked about kind of character strong and the comparison to exercise, but I I think of flexing curiosity as a muscle. And the one thing that I would say that anyone could do, the most practical thing would be before you're going to sit with someone, whether that's a business meeting or a friend, if you just ask yourself, what do I want to understand about this person? And if you just take mm-hmm. the time to do that as a meditation, you know, yeah. and within this this kind of modality I practice called Gestalt, they have this this meditation of you wake up in the morning and you say, what do I want to understand about myself in the world today? Hmm. And it's you just start with all of these questions. Yeah. What do I want to understand? And it becomes this this beautiful way of allowing curiosity to guide relationships and interaction with the world which is so powerful. And what I found is that was probably one of the most significant things I did even with consulting clients and coaching clients of if I just started to do that. And now it's it's just kind of natural. I feel like mm. I've just carved those neural pathways in my brain where it's kind of how I go yeah. out. There. But that single question before you sit of what do I want to understand about that person? And w- then people oftentimes have the reflexive answer. What if people aren't willing to meet me there? great let them tell you that yeah. <laughs> you know and then see where you can go from there but yeah yeah um so with empathy so listening asking questions being present to that um question for you <laughs> i'm ready, <laughs> ready? <laughs> so with empathy one thing that's curious about this is so much of how i've i've learned to communicate and so much of the way that i work with people is about kind of coming out of story of how others are feeling, how they'll react to you, beliefs about who you are, just really coming back to the present moment and communicating authentically, transparently about what we're thinking and feeling. And so when it comes to empathy, what are your thoughts about, you know, because it's like for me to sit here and to empathize with you, there's an inherent like perception, right? I'm, I'm making a judgment or an assessment that is inherently not necessarily true for you. May, they may align you know, perfectly, closely, but what are your thoughts about empathy in terms of, because if I'm genuinely trying to empathize and perhaps the same way that the teddy bears were a gesture of kindness, but they were off, how do we reconcile that idea of empathizing but not making up a story that again limits who the other person can be or what they are in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I think it echoes a bit of your meditation or your practice of like, what do I want to understand or, or asking people, what do you, 
what do you want out of this? I, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is in many times asking the question. So instead of just like sending the teddy bear, you just ask, what do you need? Yeah. And sometimes people know how to answer that. Sure. And you get immediate insight. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. I can send, you know, instead of the money I'd spend on the teddy bear, I'll send them money because kids need counseling. Yeah. Got it. You know, the harder work comes in when people, and this is probably just as likely, actually don't know what they need in the moment. And then we get into the skill set of like discovering need, um, which is, is yeah. yeah, it's its own um, skill set and and language. You know, we talked about Gottman, talk about like Chapman and the five love languages. And, you know, if, if people don't have some of those frameworks in their mind, they might not know that they are actually looking for words of affirmation and not for you to be helping in this other way. Um, but I think in learning how to ask the right questions or having some of those tools in your own toolbox and speaking from your own story, um, again, like that discovery of intersection, part of like the gift of storytelling is be like, you know, not to, like the, in the ideal, you're not projecting onto them or like trying to solve problems. It's more just like, and one of the things that helped me a lot was this book, The Five Love Languages. And I realized that sometimes I'm such an acts of service guy that I'm helping load the dishes while my partner just wanted to sit with me on the couch. Mm-hmm. That was hard for me. Like, do you ever feel, and just like being able to use that vocabulary as a passive way of teaching. Can you break down what the love languages are for people that might not know? Good point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gary Chapman says we give and receive love in um, different dialects basically. Yeah. And he would say that the five are acts of service, giving and receiving gifts, physical touch, quality time, and words of affirmation. And uh, he would suggest that most often the way that we most like to receive love is the dialect or language we speak most fluently. So I grew up with a lot of acts of service in my life. um, And so I feel most loved when people are helping me. Um, And so I think my most effective love language is like helping others. Um, Like doing things to pick up or help around the house. In my brain, that actually frees up time. Yeah. but to someone else whose love language is quality time, while I'm, you know, messing around picking stuff up, they're like waiting for me to hang out with them. Welcome to my relationship. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Mickey. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the reality for, you know, romantic, platonic, all relationships. We totally. always have that, like, uh, are we speaking the same language conversation? And so in, in talking with people, right, that like that discovery process um, is a big part of, of empathy. Yeah. is helping understand need. And if they don't understand their own need, then helping them understand need. I mean, that, I'm trying to think of the words that you said, but that need identification piece feels so crucial yeah. in there. And actually, while we were talking, I remembered the platinum rule, right? Which says, like, don't treat people, mm. what's the golden rule? The golden rule is treat, treat people others. the way you'd like to be treated. Right. And it's like, well, not if your love language is like acts of service and theirs yeah. is quality time. It's the platinum rule is treat people the way that they, they would like to be treated. Yeah. And it inherently means like you have to ask a question. And so that need identification piece is feels so fundamental there. And so what are the things that you have read or understand about helping people with that? Like I would talk certainly about 
like nonviolent communication in there. And so the love languages, which were super helpful for me and Mickey early in on our relationship of just understanding that exact distinction of I'm very much acts of service. She's very much quality time and physical touch. And so being very clear that, you know, that I was giving love in the way that she wanted to receive it. What are the other things that people can do or tools in the toolkit to help people identify their needs to help whether it's family members, friends, romantic partners, yeah, that's, the, I mean, that's the fun intersection of personal development and like relational wellness. Yeah. It right? is, I, I think that is the the best gift of doing personal development is it gives you frameworks to interact with others in a way that is informed mm. by new frameworks and new perspectives. So love languages, the Enneagram, um, literally like those like question boxes and like learning the vocabulary of questions has been helpful to me. Um anything that is uh, self-discovery. So it's like, if you are a, you know, like going to any sort of like personal, what it, it's a meditation or a MITT or landmark or any of those things that are, whatever that f- feels resonant to you is anytime you do self-discovery, it gives you new language to navigate relationships. Totally. Um, so I think sometimes people get caught up in like the, specifically the relational dynamics like what can i do to help my relationship and it's almost always okay what can i do to better understand myself to have language to how i navigate this relationship yeah totally i'm going to share just quickly here in this one because it was so helpful it was like uh, for those of you who might not be familiar have you ever gone on like nonviolent communication have you read any of that stuff i've read some of this i haven't like done a workshop or anything so the the simplest has been super informative for like a lot of the men's work that I do and, and even in my own relationship. So basically the, the core framework would be that like so often we are speaking and, and they use violent communication as almost like this kind of like very intense word to really kind of grab your attention. But that violent communication is any sort of communication that is grounded in uh, judgment, in hyperbole, in these all-consuming statements of like you are of you always, you never, that when we use this language, we're inherently judging other people, we're limiting who they can be, we're attacking them. And so uh, the the framework to remember is O-F-N-R. So it's observation, feeling, need, and request. And basically what it's saying is that like anytime someone is, is making an attack, so I'll say like Mickey has a, a judgment of me. So she would say something about like, it's like you never listen to me. Right. And I'll go, okay, so I'll reflect and I'll say, so this is a judgment of me. I want to know, like, what, what did I do specifically? What is like the actual action that happened or thing that I did that you can point to? And how did it make you feel? And then owning her feeling. And even when we own our feeling, which is so challenging. And even for me who studies this stuff, it's, it's still challenging. So often we will use words like, I don't feel seen by you. Um, I feel neglected, but not feeling seen or feeling neglected is not actually an emotion. It's an accusation of the other person not doing something, right? I don't feel seen. That involves the other person. So it's actually even taking into like, what are, what are you feeling? What is your emotion that's there? Taking ownership of that. And then the, the really important thing here is that like anytime we are upset, frustrated, angry in relationship, it is because we have a need that is not being met. And so this is the foundation of exactly what we were talking about. And so then just asking that question of like, what did you need? And what Mickey needs 
is what we were able to come back to. It's like when I showed her a house for a property that we're looking at upstate and it was bigger than she's told me she wants to buy. She just feels like she's told me five times already and I showed her a house that was way bigger than she wanted and it was like, you never listened to me. And that we, we were able to work that into when you showed me that house uh, that is way bigger than any houses that I told you I'm interested in buying. Like I just felt angry because I've told you so many times and like it's, I feel like I'm like not being heard, which again, another kind of you know accusation, but even in there. And so it's like, I need, I need you to listen to me, to hear me. And so it's like in the future, can you just please like listen to me and like acknowledge like that you've heard me. And so I was like, anytime I come to you with a house in the future, I will reiterate what I've heard from you and really share my purpose of sharing anything. And so it's like, just able to bring it down to a much more kind of like grounded level in their experience without the kind of shaming, right? Like you are versus you did kind of framework. Yeah. That, um, clarity of language. That's the whole thing. (laughs) It it always will be, you know, like if we can't speak effectively to ourselves or others in ways that are, that is actually what we want, mean or need, then we're, we're always going to be frustrated externally or internally by the gap between like expectation reality. Yeah. Beautiful, man. And so as we look at empathy as one of these practical applications of deep kindness, is there anything else that you would want people to know or understand before we move on? Um, no, I, I think the maybe the, the most practical application would be like identify, identify categorically where you think you are different than people and, and like the the practice of it in my brain is like intentionally investing in areas where you feel different. And that's not, doesn't have to be something you do all the time because it's hard and exhausting, but it's like, okay, I am a straight white male. What does that mean for like the people that I spend time with who identify different sexually, who identify different racially, who identify different uh, culturally or um, religiously? How do people identify different from a belief structure? Uh, like all those different sort of categorical differences that really do distinguish us from other people in the world. Yeah. I think part of the practice in my mind is the chipping away of figuring out, okay, like how do I spend time with people yeah. and listen um, in a way that intentionally investigates categories in my life that I don't know that I don't know about yet yeah. <laughs> or that I know that I don't know about. We start there and then we discover what we don't know. What we don't know. Totally. And one of the things just on that is I think one of the things that even for people who are really active on social media of this idea of empathy, something that's been really helpful for me is even just actively following people from like who Mm. have diverse perspectives. And it's like, whether those are conservatives, whether those are, you know, people of different kind of gender identities or anything like that. And just allowing yourself to expand perspective and listen in some of those areas where for, you know, a lot of people who even took for me largely like white friend group, yeah. it's like just expanding your bubble and perspective of the experience of others is super, is a very actionable thing to do there. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the, the low burden stuff that is a good place. That's the five pound weight to start with. <laughs> exactly. Totally. Um, cool. So we're, we're at like an hour and 15 right now, sans two minutes for our garbage friends, <laughs> you know? So who maybe we'll keep in. Yeah. We like them. Kind we of. like them. I like the conversation. Um, so what's your what's your timing like? You gotta get out of here, or can I ask one word? Um, yeah, what time is it actually? We can let's see. Our, our time is it's probably gonna be around ten thirty or about eleven thirty. Eleven thirty right now. Great. Yeah, I got a few more minutes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, what would be? So I love that we talked about forgiveness. We talked about 
empathy. Um, what what do you want people to know on a larger? And actually, before I get to there, which is kind of like taking a step back from this and like you're doing so much work in the education system, which is really beautiful. And I, and I want to help people to understand kind of like the, the current place that we find ourselves in as a society in America specifically. Um, but is there anything else that you would want to look at in terms of these like practical applications of deep kindness that people should, that you would like people to consider? Um, yeah, fortunately or unfortunately, I think I could talk about that forever (laughs) yeah uh maybe the the final piece uh, in terms of where i think we'll go next will be um i think that deep kindness is predicated on vulnerability Mm. and i talk a lot about vulnerability as the willingness to care yeah um i think that the action of caring is um is one of the most vulnerable things we can do in our current world um and i think a lot of times we think maybe the cultural narrative of vulnerability is that it's like crying and um like this like emotional uh breakdown in some situations and and i think it's important to distinguish like i don't think breakdowns equal breakthroughs i don't think that vulnerability like necessitates crying i think um vulnerability is just the willingness to be seen as caring deeply about something Mm. um and that it gets expressed in lots of ways uh, and so to me, deep kindness is, is advocacy, you know, it's activism, it's, it's fighting for something. Um, even when that's inconvenient, even when there's odds against you, um, even when people are judging you or laughing at you for it. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the most vulnerably kind things that we could give the world. So, um, be interested in like people listening. What is it, what is it that you're, um, willing to care for? Mm. How would you answer that question? Uh, yeah, to me, to me, it looks like education. You know, it looks like um, what I would consider in many ways a deeply broken system that is reliant on um, frameworks and structures that have been built over generations and decades that uh, I don't think best serve students right now. I just read an article recently about lawmakers who didn't want to allocate funds towards social emotional learning in schools because they said in their day, uh, it was more of like a toughen up conversation. And they're like, our parents would just take us behind the woodshed. And this is literal like politicians who are making, who are allocating funds to schools and saying they don't need funds to teach things like empathy or perspective taking or growth mindset in schools. Because in my day, we solved that through abuse. <laughs> it's like, and that's like some of the narratives that are like happening in our country right now. Yeah that is actually preventing growth in the system. You know, we're like one of the lowest on the totem pole in terms of investing in education. And some of those things like that, I suppose that's what I fight for, you know, and some of the most practical applications of that like looks like going and working with educators and administrators to help change the mindset around what education can and I believe should be based on the current reality of young people today and the future reality of what the world's gonna need and then providing them with the most practical tools to then like actually implement that and integrate that into all of their work. Um, so that's where I get like heated and I, that's where I'll like, I will go toe to toe with any, any educator who says We're, we don't need, this isn't my job. Yeah. I'm well, like, okay, yeah, let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> and that, that kind of is like a lead into even where I wanted to take this, which is what is the current reality 
that young people face today and how is it different than say, you know, I'm in my early thirties. How old are you? 30, 30. Welcome to the club. Early 30s. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, what is the reality for the youth today and how is that different? And you're always so brilliant with like statistics and research and stuff like that. So if you were to kind of quantify some of the bigger differences, you talked earlier about like the psychiatric, the emotional health of young people today and comparing it to like in like individuals in therapy in the fifties. And right. so how can you quantify kind of like how things have shifted in the situation that young people today currently find themselves in? Um, yeah, I reference a couple of data points. One would be, uh, the research, well, first of all, education, so much of the system is designed to get people to college yeah. and the average dropout rate in the first year of college in our country is nearly 50%. Wow. I've never heard that before. Isn't that insane? Yeah. And it's you, wild. That's like one of the things that I'm like, if this isn't setting off fire alarms in schools every day, this is so confusing to me because we spent all this time preparing them to get them there. And I don't think we're actually preparing them to be there <laughs> for lots of reasons. Wow. Part of it is cost. Uh, but a lot of it is this great quote from a this guy, Dominic Randolph, who runs um, an affluent school district in New York, he says, we're creating fragile thoroughbreds, people who've actually never been truly allowed to fail or face true adversity yeah. um, because of this like sort of protective nature that we've cultivated and created as a culture. Something I also wanted to speak about with you. Yeah. And so kids are like, first time they face adversity on their own, they don't know how to handle it. Mm. Um, so yeah, one data point that we're wrestling with as a country is this like tremendous lack of preparedness for higher education, um, which echoes in a lot of parts of our life, right? Like our ability to experience adversity um, mentally or, or physically or experientially is a big deal. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of the mental health crisis in our world. It's like, there's a lot of stuff we're trying to navigate politically and socioeconomically and culturally. And if I actually don't know how to handle that adversity, then I'm gonna spend a lot of my time being overwhelmed, frustrated, um, sad, all those things. Um, you know, there's data out of Rada's book where she talks about loneliness and loneliness is worth, worse for your health than smoking a pack a day. I think and it's we, actually two packs a day. I, yeah. <laughs> I can't even fathom, right? Yeah, like yeah. you will die younger totally. from smoking a lot of cigarettes a day yeah. than just being lonely. And the data around loneliness is like half plus of our world yeah. would identify as lonely. Um, 54%. According yeah. to our latest, fifty-four percent of millennials, according to this recent Cigna survey. Yeah, yeah, that's brutal. Yeah, um, you know, what are the other data points? Eight, eight out of the ten things that tr that employers want are what we would call soft skills. Yeah, and there's all kinds of like thoughtful blogs and arguments saying like, why are we calling them soft skills? Or like, these are the real skills. These are the hard skills that people need to be successful. Totally. Um, yeah, it, and I think even just like the 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 language narrative in our culture. Susan Cain wrote this amazing book, Quiet. Yeah. Um, and she does this little experiment where she takes self-help books from 100 years ago. She tries to find the most commonly used words because she was interested in like, okay, a century ago, what were people trying to improve at? Yeah. And she found words like service and honor and integrity. And, uh, and she did the same thing with books from today. Yeah. And it was like charisma, charm, funny, popular. And she says, we've shifted from a culture of character to a culture of personality. Mm. And I think that internal narrative for young people is like i'm supposed to be charming and Oof, interesting and that fun one hit man because yeah. that's going to increase my subscribers my followers like so much of the cultural language is about your brand like you are your brand and and i think that's actually like a dangerous mindset because Holy, if everything's about yeah. who's following me and my reputation then like then sometimes we miss those key 
components of like how to actually serve others. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a bunch of data points that I would point to in arguing. No, actually, I think our educa- education system has to teach this stuff. Yeah. So in, you know, even just I'll reiterate again when you just said it's character versus personality mm-hmm. and what you're cultivating. And it, like it reminded me of the, the David Brooks book, The Road to Character, and he yeah. talks about resume virtues versus eulogy virtues, right? Yeah. And the distinction yeah. of which are you contributing into. I just love those kind of archetypes that are so helpful. And you talked earlier, but you said, you said thorough, you said fragile thoroughbreds. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts of, you know, you've got people like Jonathan Haidt who wrote like the coddling of the American mind and talks about some of these kind of malinformed policies to protect kids that end up leading to mm-hmm. them not being capable of handling adversity. And it, a part of me feels like a lot of the stuff that you're working on by older generations gets relegated to kind of this like sensitivity training <laughs> yeah. because it has the word emotion in it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so how do you, how do you speak about that? If I were to like challenge you and say, it's like, you know, kids don't need this kind of emotional training. They need to learn to basically kind of like toughen up to like face adversity. It's like, what is the balance there? And like, how do we, how do we, what is the relationship between your work and kind of like that nexus of, a generation that is seemingly fragile, right? Um, and uh, what? It, how does your work play into that and correcting that? Yeah. And I, I might change the narrative. Or, or I mean, my response to that would be like, okay, tell me how toughening up served your generation. Um, I would say toughening up led to uh, an ability to uh, basically kind of like face adversity, to kind of own my own experience and like uh, outcomes and like control my experience. Yeah, the bootstraps narrative. Yeah. So one of my questions would be, who does that leave behind? Um, Well, that's their... It doesn't matter. That's their responsibility. Yeah. Just like it was mine. Do you think that people have an equal shot at bootstraps at pulling themselves up? Do you think some people have more work to do than others? And is that... Uh, systematic, systematically fair. Well, I think this is kind of the the narrative of why, like, even like making myself immersing myself in like conservative talking points is just this. I think that this is like the narrative that the right goes into right now is yeah. pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Is that it's like what what doesn't an African American person or a transgender person have the same access to that I do today? Sure. And so it's like if you were to look on the surface of you know, getting a job, sure, someone of any sort of gender identity or something like that could have a job that I could have, but I think doesn't, now I'm on your team again, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there's like, yeah, there's lots of questions that it's an interesting discovery, but it is an interesting conversation. Why is this stuff relevant? Why does it matter? You point to some data. I spoke to a room of, it was the Alaska Safety Council. I thought it was about school safety, and I realized the night before that it was like people who are in charge of jobs that had high fatality rates whoa i was like i'm gonna have to change my talk a little bit and i did uh, i remembered a podcast i listened to that um shared about uh, when exxon built their like this massive oil rig it was like four times larger than they'd ever built before and you know the data around um that job is it's a hugely high fatality rate or injury rate um incredibly one of the most dangerous yeah and so they were building this massive new structure and along with it, you almost knew there were going to be, I mean, high risk. 
Uh, and so they brought in this like leadership consultant to work with some of the managers, um, these like burly men who are going to be in charge of opening this brand new project. And this like little, I think she was French, uh, came in and like did months of basically empathy training and yeah. vulnerability training. And um, by the end was like having these like sort of gruff, burly men massaging each other's feet. Hmm. And I remember one of the stories that I thought was fascinating was one of the men while massaging another man's feet literally forgot who he was, had like such a disconnection between <laughs> his identity and his actions that he like had this like existential crisis. Um, all that to say, uh, productivity doubled and safety incidents decreased by like 88%. Whoa. Because the culture for so long was toughen it up, pull it by your bootstraps, yeah. do it on our own. Which what that does is you're not allowed to ask questions. Hmm. Like you, it's, it's an invulnerable environment because if you don't know what to do, you're going to be seen as stupid or weak or less yeah. than. And so most of the fatalities on the job were guys that weren't willing to ask for help. Yeah. And in doing so, would literally kill them, like would die. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, you know, I, in talking to this group, I was like, you know, kindness might seem like this fluffy thing, but I think it's actually the foundation of a safe working environment. Yeah. Because if I'm not willing to ask for help, then I'm going to continually find myself in situations that are actually dangerous. And that, you know, in that line of work plays out in a life or death scenario. But culturally, Right. My unwillingness to ask for help or be kind or be vulnerable with others plays out in a lot of other, yeah. it, it, what I would say is deadly scenarios. Um, so yeah, from even a data standpoint, like the willingness to be vulnerable with each other yeah. is actually key to, to safety, even in the toughest, most traditionally sort of conservative tough jobs. When you, you mentioned, you, you phrased it as like when you talk about the safety of not, not just our safety, but others. And I think of that idea of this as not necessarily an act of just personal well-being, but an act of service of like the ability mm -hmm. to creating that culture of kindness and being courageous enough to be vulnerable like that, like ends up being an act of service to others. If you're on a rig, like asking questions is literally going to save other people's lives to make them more safe, Yeah, you know, to be vulnerable and to grow there. It's, you know, oftentimes in men's work, we talk about this idea of the narrative for so long is that like, uh, protecting serving was sacrifice was sacrificing oneself was like the rigid role of the the man of the protector mm -hmm. of the father and that it's no longer necessarily kind of like what is most beneficial to sacrifice oneself it's like sure there are moments where uh, redeeming qualities are, are kind of present in sacrifice but how do we sustainably serve mm and how to make that more possible. And I think, yeah, exactly what you're saying is certainly an, an ingredient in that, so. Yeah, and, and reframing sacrifice, right? Like what is what is sacrifice? Um, I, I read a, a recent series of tweets about someone who's like talking about that father role of I'm willing to sacrifice my time or like my body, I'll stand in front of the car. And, and this like feminine perspective was you know, the real sacrifice I need you to make is I need you to do the laundry because that's going to keep the germs <laughs> off of our kids. And it was just like that narrative around what we, the masculine definition of sacrifice and how um, it doesn't always actually match up with need. Again, to go back to like that true question of yeah. need. And so I think sacrifice will always be an important ingredient in love. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like knowing what that sacrifice looks like and why is a, is a big piece of that what and it goes back to what you said is i i had this 
the kind of existential crisis. It's like after Mickey and I got married and I, I was with my friend and I was like, Mickey's like the primary breadwinner in our family. And I was like, it's interesting. I was like, and I have this, this urge in me innately to be the primary breadwinner in our family. Yeah. And I was like, what, what is this called to fit this role? Like, what is this narrative that I have of being this like protector of our family and understanding this association I'd made with like protecting your family being the primary breadwinner and like what that was. And I had this kind of this whole epiphany about like the modern provider is like the modern provider is, is not you providing what you think your family needs. It's you understanding what your family needs and <laughs> stepping into a role to actually do that, yeah. which is again, yeah. helping other people to identify their needs Yep. and like coming back to servant leadership and so much of where you started. And yeah, um, this has been awesome, man. I agree. I really, I enjoyed being in the egg with you for (laughs) a little bit longer. Um, One of this is kind of like a a tangential question, but um, I'm curious about it. You are, you you have such an ability to synthesize information to package it in such a way that I think it's it's digestible and and really impacting, um, impactful. and I think so much that you're an amazing public speaker and that's your primary job, right? Is as a public speaker, motivational speaker. And I'm curious for people who are listening, what, what makes you really good as a public speaker and as a trainer in that capacity? First of all, I think I'm attempting to receive the compliment. Um, you are a great speaker. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, I think th- there is a, probably a combination of earnestness character, which I think, yeah, a piece of that is character related, um, humility in like humility in the sense of, uh, I, I believe I'm really good at what I do. Um, and I, and I believe that I'm not like trying to like, I don't want to put it on anyone. Hmm. Um, I'm. I believe my role is like to offer perspectives yeah. in a way that feels accessible. So I think like the humility of delivery, which is to say my speaking mentor would say it never be the hero of your own story. Um, even if like you did something heroic or cool, yeah. like how do you always frame it in? I learned this from someone else, which I did. Um, huh. So I think that approach is really critical. Like, so I like never try to like give my like, resume or why I'm qualified to talk about it. I just start talking about things that have resonated with me totally. and where I heard them, hoping that like I just get to like pass, you know, I'm like, it's a conveyor belt of information yeah. and it's just repackaging in ways that um, resonate with me. So I think like humility plus earnestness um, plus a, an authentic desire to, um, yeah, authenticity would probably be the container there. And I want to speak to what you just said, and then we will bring this thing to a, a close is you you talked about not being the hero of your own story and sharing this wisdom that like you have experienced with others. And I think that one of the, the things that I hear most often from people who want to speak, want to write, and the, the question the internal critic says, who am I to do this? Who am I to tell people like how to live their lives or like what is going to work to transition their business or their relationship? And it's like what you just talked about is like, I'm not telling anybody to do anything. <laughs> All I'm doing is sharing what I have experienced yeah. from others being awesome 
yeah. that has really impacted me, which yeah. is just your personal experience. And it's like that, that shift of humility and authenticity, I think makes the biggest difference of like, who are you? The same as anyone else having an experience and things impact you. Yeah. And it's, you're just making a decision to, to share that and like honoring that, you know, really deeply, which I think is a really important, which means that anyone can do it. Right. Yeah. Some, some better than others, but <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, I mean, we all, uh, life is the size of our awareness. So we all process things through our little egg Yeah, and, um, that process when shared, you know, it's the storytelling thing. It's like some people in listening to me will have intersections with this story and some people have very few. Yeah. Um, and for someone, another guest you have on the podcast, someone, that same person listening to them will be like, this is mind blowing, you know? Yeah. And, and that's the gift. And that's like the, the fun grand experiment of lots of people sharing space at the same time is figuring out how we intersect. Totally. Well, my friend, for people who want to catch up with you, I will go ahead and lead this by saying for anyone who is uh, running an organization or a part of a team that is really interested in this type of kind of exploration of deep kindness and transforming culture in a really meaningful way, uh, Houston's awesome. And so we'll have his information in show notes. Uh, be sure to reach out to him. But what's going on right now that people can check out of yours or where can they find you on the interwebs? Yeah, um, if you want to follow my my personal journey, probably the best place is, I'll just give you all Instagram. We'll stay there. We'll live there. We'll stay on the gram. Yeah, stay on the gram. Uh, Houston Craft, that's that's me. Um, character, with a K. With a K, yeah. Houston like the city, Craft like cheese. Uh, character Strong would be the work we do in schools if you're interested in learning more about that or supporting that in any way. Um, and then um, the final piece would be locally here in Venice, um, run a space called The Good Workhouse, which is dedicated towards supporting education in Haiti, but also sort of reinventing the fundraising model for a generation that doesn't want to just write a check. They want yeah. to be involved in purpose. Um, so that's at Good Workhouse. Those are the three main things I feel excited and passionate about. All right, my friend. I have loved this conversation. High five. And with <laughs> that, we are officially dissolving the egg. So long, guys. If you are loving What's the Big Idea and these types of conversations, drop a review. Super grateful for any time you can take. And we will see you next week.